Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. for the um, Valley Beit Midrash, uh, for bringing me out to this wonderful, sunny place. Um, I want to begin with an article. Uh, this is actually source number one in your handout uh, that I'd like to read to you from 2012. Okay, the byline is Tehran, right, the capital of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Iran's vice president delivered a baldly anti-Semitic speech on Tuesday at an international anti-drug conference here, saying that the Talmud, a central text of Judaism, was responsible for the spread of illegal drugs around the world. I guess there's something I've been missing in my Talmud reading. European diplomats in attendance expressed shock. Even Iranian participants in the conference, co-sponsored by Iran and the United Nations, privately wondered at their government's motive for allowing such a speech even giving its long-standing antagonism toward Israel. More than 25,000 Jews live in Iran, and they are recognized as a religious minority, with a representative in parliament. The speech by Vice President Mohammad Reza Rahimi seemed bound to isolate Iran further just days before a new set of onerous Western economic sanctions. Notably, a European embargo on Iranian oil is set to be enforced because of the long-standing dispute over Iran's nuclear problems, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Iran says the program is peaceful, and Western nations and Israel suspect it is a cover to develop the ability to make nuclear weapons. Mr. Rahimi, second in line to then, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, said, the Talmud teaches to, quote, destroy everyone who opposes the Jews. The, quote, Zionists are in firm control of the illegal drug trade, Mr. Rahimi said, asking foreign dignitaries to research his claims. Zionists is Iran's ideological term for Jews who support the state of Israel. Mr. Rahimi, who spoke after Mr. Deleo, told stories of gynecologists killing black babies on the orders of the Zionists and claimed that the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 was started by Jews, adding that mysteriously no Jews died in that uprising. He also said that the Talmud teaches Jews to think that they are a superior race. They think God has created the world so that all other nations can serve them, he said. Halfway through his speech, Mr. Rahimi said there was a difference between Jews who, quote, honestly follow the prophet Moses and the Zionists who are, quote, the main elements of the international drugs trade. That is a very hard article to read just because of the vile anti-Semitic things uh, that this uh, uh, official uh, in Iran had to say. It's also a little bit funny and comical. I mean, can you be real? Is the Talmud really 
this subversive, dangerous text that encourages somehow the illegal drug trade. Right? So what I want to do with you today is not just to talk kind of in the air about my research, but to really learn together Jewish texts in which a different vision of Iran, uh, where the Jews are part and parcel uh, of, of, the, of the region, where they see themselves to a certain extent uh, as Iranian or Babylonian, as the case might be, um, to sort of counter, not just by saying this is a ridiculous anti-Semitic speech, uh, but actually to envision a different way that Iran and, and the Jews can coexist. Now, despite the fact that this is an article from 2012, of course, these sorts of things continue to go on. Terrible things continue to be said. I did choose this article because the prominence of the Talmud uh, in, in the article and because there's an irony there. Because actually, rather than the Talmud being this you know, vicious uh, document that threatens non-Jews, in fact, if you really understand what the Talmud is and what it's doing, it presents a kind of model for being authentically Jewish, uh, for being true to your traditions, uh, but also inhabiting a space uh, like an Iranian space. So that's kind of by way of introduction. Now, I have a very small map uh, at the bottom. It might, might be too small to, uh, uh, to, to appreciate. But I want to first orient ourselves geographically. Okay? The Talmud, the longer name of the Talmud, uh, is the Babylonian Talmud. Um, we'll get to Iran in a minute. But my first question to you is, where is Babylonia? When we say the Babylonian Talmud, where is this Talmud associated with? That was the Euphrates? Yes, Syria. that is exactly the case. Uh, it is in the political boundaries of uh, today, today's Iraq. And even kind of historically, it's in a region you mentioned, the two rivers. Another name for this region is Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between two rivers, right? The two great ri rivers of the region, uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris. So the Babylonian Talmud was produced by Jews living in this community. Um, the earliest rabbis named uh, who participate in the Talmudic discussion that's now recorded for us lived in the third century of the Common Era, right? The 200s. Uh, and they lived not just between the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, but actually, they lived uh, at the center of the Sasanian Iranian Empire. At that time, in late antiquity, there was a Persian Empire that was based in a capital city known as Tessiphon. That city right, was located in Babylonia. So despite the fact that kind of geographically, we're thinking about Babylonia, we even are talking about the Babylonia, the Babylonian Talmud, when we're thinking politically, culturally to an extent, even religiously, the types of communities that um, Jews came into contact with, and linguistically, right? The languages that were spoken, particularly not only Aramaic, uh, but also Persian, we are really in an Iranian sphere, okay? Now, I wanna, I wanna show you in the, in the second source uh, kind of a remarkable way in which the rabbis didn't just think it was coincidence that they lived in Babylonia and that their form of learning flourished in Babylonia. Uh, but actually, um, Babylonia somehow symbolized th their project. The kind of learning that they did was deeply connected to Babylonia. So let's look at the source, uh, source number two. Um, the question is Babylonia, right? Babel uh, in Hebrew. 
where does this word come from, right? What does this word uh, mean? How does this word teach us something? But in fact, as we're going to see in the answer, he's trying to say Babylonia as the expression of the learning that took place in Babylonia. How are we to understand this? In a way, right, in academia, we have ways of referring to different spheres of knowledge. Philosophy, for example, if you just say, you know, France or French, I already know that you're talking about what's known as continental philosophy. It's not just a coincidence that this form of philosophy flourished on the European continent and particularly in France, but there's a deep connection to the space and the type of thinking that developed from there. So here, when we talk about Babylonia, look what Rabbi Yochanan says. He's talking about a place, but he's really talking about a type of learning that's associated with that place. Rabbi Yochanan said, this refers to the fact that it is mixed. Okay, so the Hebrew word for Babylonia is Bavel. The word for mixed is Blula, okay? Meaning it's mixed with scripture, Mishnah, and Talmud. What does he mean by this, this Rabbi Yochanan? What do you think he means that the type of learning that flourished in Babylonia is all mixed? There are these three elements. Good, so first of all, it's very discursive, right? They're discussing all kinds of things, but they're actually working, they're kind of moving between different corpora. There's some forms of learning where you have your base text in front of you, you're there to comment on that text, and you're not going to stray from that text. You're not going to go on a tangent, you're not going to move to another text. You can even think in terms of Jewish learning of something like Rashi. Rashi's goal is, in, in his commentary on Torah, his goal is to explain Genesis 1.1. What does it mean, Bereshit, in the beginning? And he'll explain that. And the goal of the project is to stick to that text. Midrash, to an extent, is also the same. Midrash tries to use as its base right, the, the Torah uh, and tries to explain it. Talmud, though, incorporates these different spheres of learning. It incorporates Bible, Mikra. right? It incorporates Mishnah. That's the base text that the Talmud is there to interpret. The Mishnah was an important text produced in the land of Israel around the year 200 CE which officially is the goal of the Talmud to explain. And then there's also Talmud, which is the discussions that veer off in various directions. I saw that you had a question. Yeah, is this still partly driven by the fact that it's close enough to the beginning of the diaspora that they were consciously trying to develop post-Temple Judaism? Yes, that's true. The rabbis were interested in developing post-Temple Judaism, a Judaism that existed past, you know, beyond the priests. But that was also taking place in the land of Israel. There were rabbis in the land of Israel who also needed to find a new way to be Jewish that didn't just include bringing sacrifices. So that's true, but here we're focusing on what's unique about Babylonian learning, right? And how Babylonian learning is somehow deeply connected to this space called Babylonia. By the way, does anyone remember another etymology, this one in the Torah, for where the name Babel comes from. Why do we call Babel, Babylon, Babylon? Tower of Babel, right? In fact, the Torah actually says that the reason why Babylon was named Babylon is because that is where God mixed up the languages, right? So Rabbi Yochanan here is sort of riffing on this extremely well-known etymology. He's saying, right, we know that this is a place of confused speech, He's actually being negative here, and I'll show you in a minute how we know this. Uh, 
the Babylonian Talmud, for those of you who have merited to study this very difficult work, will know that it is a confusing, it can be a confusing babble of material, right? So just as the, the Tower of Babel, right, um, basically fell or wasn't fully constructed because uh, their languages were mixed up, here we have three different types of texts, a biblical language, Mishnah, and Talmudic discussion that is very confusing. In fact, look at the next line. Rabbi Yimya said, uh, he quotes a verse from Lamentations. Right? The second you get a quote from Lamentations, you know that he's not going to have something pas- positive to say. Lamentations, of course, is the very depressing book that laments the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the temple and is read traditionally on the fast day of Tisha B'Av. So look at what that verse says in Lamentations. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Right? Pretty sad uh, verse. Rabbi Yirmiya says, this is the learning, the Talmud of Babylonia. Okay. By the way, it's no coincidence, and maybe you could guess, where are these two rabbis from, Rabbi Yochanan uh, and ultimately Rabbi Yirmiya? He moves around a little, but where do you think they might live? Do you think they live in Babylonia? No. They live not in Jerusalem, but in the Galilee, in the land of Israel. Exactly, right? They are expressing their distaste with the type of Babylonian learning uh, uh, that they think is kind of all mixed up or or dark. It's a testament to the Babylonian Talmud that it includes these criticisms. This is classic Babylonian Talmud, right? We're going to quote the rabbis from the land of Israel who are all down on our form of learning, and we're going to preserve it, right, for posterity. So we already see here that rabbis perceived that the type of learning that was taking place in Babylonia was not just coincidentally taking place there, but somehow this mixture, this way of thinking, was deeply Babylonia. Okay? And we'll try to come back to that, why that might be in just a minute. I want to now think a little more about the, kind of the political situation of Jews who lived uh, in Babylonia, which once again was ruled by an Iranian dynasty known as the Sasanian dynasty. Okay? And I want to take you on a thought experiment. Imagine that you are not a Jew living in Arizona, um, in this wonderful country, but you're living in a place uh, where there has been a somewhat negative past uh, towards Jews, a complicated place in Jewish history. Um, imagine for a minute that you live under Persian rule. Right? And that, in fact, that it's time to celebrate a certain holiday that commemorates victory over the Persians, at least in part. Right? What holiday am I thinking of? Purim. Right? We find in the source that I want to learn with you some interesting reflection on the challenge of living in a space which um, you read about in Megillat Esther, in the book of Esther. You think about and you celebrate uh, the way it was either defeated or at least um, the, the destruction was, was kept back, and yet you're still there. And yet you're still being ruled over by Persian kings. Source number three comes fittingly from Tractate Megillah, right? The tractate, the Talmudic tractate that discusses uh, primarily the laws of Purim uh, and the reading of the Book of Esther, right? which we do uh, on the holiday of Purim. The question... Um, the question that 
uh, the, the Talmud is asking here, and this line is not there, uh, is a really good one. What's one way that we often commemorate a victory or some happy occasion in the synagogue? What prayer do we say? Saying the Hallel. Right? Usually, right, Pesach, right, the holiday of Passover, we go and we say Hallel. We celebrate the fact that God took us out of Egypt. He defeated the Egyptians, right? You go through virtually every holiday uh, where there's reason to celebrate. Hanukkah, right? We celebrate the victory of the Hasmoneans, the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash. It's reason to celebrate. Not only do we eat as Jews, but we also praise God saying special chapters from Tehillim, from Psalms. Why do we say Hallel and Purim? It's sort of a mystery, right? I mean, the, the, we literally went from almost entire annihilation to, um, uh, to being saved. In fact, to having uh, a Jewish official really, really high up in government, Mordechai. This is what the uh, Talmud is confronting. I want to just go down to um, the middle of this paragraph. Really, one, two, three, four, five lines down, the middle of the line. By the way, the person who's going to say this line is a rabbi named Rava. If I ask you geographically, where did Rava live? Does anyone know? Babylon. He lived in Babylon. Uh, so unlike those rabbis who were down on Babylonian learning, he engaged in Babylonian learning. Not only that, he lived in the metropolitan area of the Sasanian capital. He lived in a town known as Mechoza, which was part of this capital, Tessiphon. And in fact, there are stories, hopefully we'll get to one of them, where he interacts, or the stories are about him interacting with uh, the Sasanian kings, the Persian kings and their family. So this is a guy who knows Persian power right, up close and personal. Listen to what he says as to why we don't recite Halal and Purim. Rava said yet a different reason. Granted that Halal is said there with respect to the exodus from Egypt, for in Halal it says, give praise, O servants of the Lord, right? Halalu avdei Hashem. That is to say, servants of the Lord and not servants of Paro, right? The climax of Halal, if we think about it, on the holiday of Passover is we're able to call ourselves not free people. It's interesting, right? You got to serve someone, as a wise man once said. Um, we are proud of being servants of God, right? Hallelujah of Dei Hashem. So on, on, on Pesach, on Passover, we can really celebrate this. We no longer serve uh, despots. We no longer serve slave uh, holders. Now we just serve God. We serve the Lord in heaven. That's cause for celebration. What about Purim? But can it be said here, give praise, O servants of the Lord? After Purim, can you say, Thank God, we are only servants of the Lord. We don't serve any other uh, source. Can we say, and not servants of Ahasuerus? Even after the miracle of Purim, we are still the servants of Ahasuerus. Akati avade de Ahasuerus, not in Aramaic. We are still servants of Ahasuerus. Now, what does Rava mean? When Ahasuerus, <laughs> however you identify him, uh, was an Achaemenid king who had been dead for many, many centuries. So he doesn't serve Akashverosh. But it seems that Rava identified in the current Persian regime continuity. Continuity between the Achaemenid Empire, during which the Perm story took place, and the current, uh, the current regime. Uh, interestingly enough, there are um, hints in other forms of literature. 
that there is an association between the first Sasadian king, Ardashir, um, and this figure, right, Achashverosh. Obviously not historically, they lived at different periods, but there was an association between uh, these two figures. So that little Talmudic discussion, technical discussion about why we don't say Hallel on uh, Purim, by an intimate of uh, the regime, uh, someone who knew the regime up close, gives us an insight maybe as to what it might have felt like to be a Jew in this, in this territory, right? As we're going to see, or as I'll mention, in fact, relations were fairly good. But it was difficult to forget the fact that you were in a place that was heavy with Jewish history, where there had been trials and tribulations, right? So it's something to think about, that what it would be like to be a Jew, uh, a rabbi, engaged in learning, ultimately producing the Talmud, and yet very much in this, in this space, in this Persian space. Okay? So that's one thing that I want to um, mention. Let's go to something maybe a little bit lighter uh, that, that gives us an insight into the, the, the world in which the rabbis lived. Okay? This is a story about the second Sasanian king. Uh, his name was King Shapur. Okay, there were actually a few Shapurs. Shapur I uh, was uh, a king that lived in the third century. In fact, right around when Shmuel, uh, a very important uh, rabbi, lived. Look at this little story. King Shapur, known in Aramaic as Shvor Malka, right? Shvor or Shapur the king, said to Shmuel, you say that the Messiah will come in a donkey. Right? This is a Jewish tradition that actually appears in Nevi'im. That, that Elijah will announce right, the coming of the Messiah on a donkey. I will send him the riding horse that I have. Shmuel said to him, do you have a horse with 1,000 colors, like the donkey of the Messiah? Right? The, in the original, he actually uses, a, um, in some of the manuscripts, a Persian uh, word for 1,000, hazar, right? The word for a thousand in Persian at that time, it was a Persian loan word, uh, to express this, right? So that even in the original language, there's some coloring. In this version, it is not there, but that is in the version of some manuscripts. Let's try to decode this kind of conversation. What was the word? Hazar, H-A-Z-A-R. What, what, what might King Shapur be after here? He's saying he has a problem with the Jewish idea, the Jewish notion that the Messiah will come at a donkey. What's his problem exactly? Donkey's so lowly. Exactly. It's such a, a peasant thing. Yes, and the Persians, and this goes back to classical antiquity. Already, Greek uh, historians and observers noted that the Persians prided themselves on their equestrian skill, right, and their use of beautiful Persian steeds. So he's insulted by this almost. I mean, your great Messiah that you wait for for so many years is going to come on this lowly donkey. You know what? Give me a call when he's ready. I'll lend him the, uh, the horse that I have. Okay? What does Shmuel say back to him? This is somewhat cryptic. But what's his response? Because he has a thousand followers. So? Yes, but it's, it, this is something very special. This isn't just your ordinary, everyday donkey. It, that donkey is not just a donkey. Yes. It's something, the donkey must represent something else. I don't know what it is, but... It's so what does, what does the donkey represent? 
<laughs> Very good. Or maybe you are when you look at the donkey. <laughs> no, but let's, you know, let's go back actually to Shapur's uh, critique, right? What is his problem with the donkey? That it's peasant. That's precisely the point, right? So I think what's happening in the source is actually the way that Jews often speak, especially in politically um, sensitive situations, uh, to officials, right? In fact, the Jewish Messiah comes on a donkey precisely for the reason that the donkey is a lowly animal, right? Oh. It's not about the bombast, right? We wait for the Messiah, not because he's going to put on a good show, but because he's going to usher in a period of peace, right, into the world. That's why we wait for the Messiah, and that's why we don't believe the Messiah has come yet, right? Because if you look around, it doesn't look very peaceful. So we want this humble figure, God's representative, to come on this lowly servant of an animal and bring, you know, and bring the world into a better place. Shmuel, though, is speaking in a way that has to be intelligible to a bombastic Persian king. And in fact, we actually have uh, reliefs and inscriptions by Shapur and by other Sasanian kings where you can see the gorgeous steeds that they ride. In fact, there's one famous image where underneath Shapur's steed, there is the head of the Roman emperor, which was, had been defeated in battle. It's an amazing... Oh, you've seen it. I've you've seen been it there. When I was in Iran. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I'm very jealous of you. I've seen pictures of it, but I was born in a time that it's more difficult uh, to get to in Iran. I was there before the revolution. Wow. 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 So Shmuel is not going to lecture the king and give him a speech as to why it's really the lowly donkey that matters. He's going to speak in the language that this kind of king would understand. So he has this kind of answer, yeah, you know, I'm sure you have a great steed, but we need something really, really special, right? I think that's what's going on, but like many Talmudic uh, uh, passages, it's open to interpretation, right? And I'm not sure that that's the right one. But I think, it, according to my interpretation, it does give us a, a lesson uh, a few lessons, actually, into how the rabbis imagined themselves in this Persian space, right? They were not, um, first of all, they could tell a story in which they describe a rabbi meeting a king. Now, I don't know if this is a historical story. The rabbis are not historians. They don't pride themselves on being historians. They're not very interested in history. They are interested in teaching lessons. Uh, and sometimes they tell stories which could be historical to teach the lessons. But more importantly, even historically, the fact that they could imagine and describe a rabbi in conversation with, with the, the king is interesting. And it's actually not so far out. We know that there are other religious minorities that had achieved audiences with the king. In fact, there's the name of one, um, one prophet of a new religion in the third century. You might have heard of it, but you probably use it as a... Uh, uh, as an insult of someone with whom you disagree with politically. Manichaeism, right? Nowadays, the word, if you call someone a Manichaean, you say, ah, you see the world in black and white, as opposed to me, I see all kinds of nuance, right? Um, but that word comes from a real religion that was founded by a guy named Mani in the third century when Shapur lived, who had gained audiences with the king. He even wrote one of his books, which was essentially translates as 
you know, the book to Shapur. He wrote it in Middle Persian, the language that Shapur um, spoke, and he had regular audiences with his king. I'm going to get to Zoroastrianism. Uh, it is not Zoroastrianism. It tried to incorporate Zoroastrianism, which is the religion of the Persian kings, an ancient Iranian religion. Shapur was interested in this religion because it was kind of universal. It had a little Buddhism in it. It had a little Zoroastrianism in it. It had a little Christianity in it. Interestingly enough, it did not have any Judaism in it. Mani was not a fan of the Jews. Uh, but the point that I'm trying to make now is that this figure right, gained audiences with the king and had theological style of conversations with him, just as Shmuel is having now. Now, Mani uh, had a different tact than Shmuel. He tried to teach the king a lesson, and Shapur was very receptive to this lesson. But ultimately, Mani was crucified. <laughs> because when you start playing that game uh, and you, you meet a new king, uh, in this case, King Wahram, uh, and he doesn't like what you have to say, then you're toast. So Mani found his end uh, on the gates of Tessifan, where he was hanged. Shmuel, on the other hand, did not engage in kind of proselytization. He did not try to convert the king. He answered him. There's a little bit of a quip there, but nothing more, right? So you can sort of see the way in which the rabbis and figures, leaders of the Jewish people, uh, could have... Uh, could have been in the Persian court. They could have had these kinds of conversations. But the Jews played smart politically. They were very, very cautious uh, and careful. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. To be fair, there are um, prices to pay, right, depending on your approach, right? But this is an approach that Shmuel, uh, that Shmuel took. Let's look at source number five for a second. And here we see even a bit more intimacy uh, that the rabbis felt with um, the Persian apparatus and the Persian king. This is just kind of an aside um, uh, line, but it's really instructive. It's a, t it's in a technical discussion about property law um, in Tractate Bava The details don't need to detain us. But rather, this discussion after the rabbi's rule on the law. Ephraim the scribe, a disciple of Reish Lakish, said in the name of Reish Lakish, the law agrees with Rabbi Shimon. Right? Rabbi Shimon stated an opinion about property law. They said it in front of King Shapur. He said, let us bring praise, another Persian word snuck into the Talmud, Afrin, to Rabbi Shimon, right? So the rabbis imagine that somehow the king has a vested interest in the most technical, halachic, Jewish legal discussions, right? Again, I'm not saying that this source is necessarily historical, but it does give you an, another insight that the Jews saw what they were doing, the rabbis saw what they were doing in terms of Jewish learning, in terms of trying to make sense of their legal system as related to what the king was doing. And the king, of course, in that context and in others, is the ultimate arbitrator of, of law. There are other sources, I didn't bring them here, where we find that um, they refer to King Shapur as my brother-in-law, not my brother-in-law as the person who married right, my sister, uh, but, you know, my brother in the realm of law, right? Uh, 
Yes, exactly. In other words, we rabbis are interested in understanding Jewish law, in making sure that we keep Jewish law. King Shapur also has that same interest. And we find that the rabbis kind of had it. Uh, they, they, saw, they saw a friend, a legal friend, uh, in terms of his commitment to the study of law in, in the Persian court, which is sort of another level, right? It's another level of, of them understanding what they're doing as being related to what's happening in you know, political uh, Iran. I want to just very quickly get back to that opening source that we started with, where there is a critique of Babylonian learning consisting of these different parts. There's a little bit of Bible. There's a little bit of Mishnah. There's these Talmudic discussions. And this is something that's unique to Babylonia. What, they didn't learn like that in the land of Israel? Apparently not. Right? If you look at the library that you would find in the land of Israel, you find that they had different kinds of books that the rabbis made. They had self-standing midrashim. They had a book apart from the Mishnah called the Tosefta. They had their own Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, known as the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, and they created different books. The Babylonian Jewry only wrote one or produced one text, one gigantic text, something like 1.8 million words, into which they put everything. If you've ever learned Talmud, alongside a technical discussion in property law, there'll be a remedy for what you do if you have heartburn, right? <laughs> and <laughs> sort of an amazing thing, but the rabbis in Babylonia believed that we need to put all of our knowledge, all of our, the things that we value, uh, into one big textual structure. Amazingly, King Shapur and later kings as well were engaged in a similar project, not, of course, for Jewish law, but for Zoroastrian texts and tradition. Zoroastrianism is an ancient Iranian religion uh, that goes back perhaps as early as the second millennium before the Common Era. You might have heard of Zarathustra, maybe by way of Nietzsche or by other sources. Um, this is a well-established, very, very old Persian religion that continues to exist in small numbers to this day. The Sasanian kings, these kings, were aligned with Zoroastrianism. They saw themselves as Zoroastrian, and they also supported Zoroastrian activities. One of the things that they supported was the production of this gigantic tradition, very similar to the Talmud, that included everything in one structure, right? Not just ritual law, not just theology, but everything, right? So it's possible that in this way as well, it's not just that the rabbis saw a friend who was interested in the law in the court, but they saw the involvement of this king right, and these kings in Zoroastrian learning as similar to the type of learning that they were engaged in themselves. Right? So in that way as well, there might be uh, a deep, not only Babylonianist, but Iranianist to the way the rabbis conceived of the Talmud. Let's continue on our little tour, and I want to share with you one of the strangest stories in the Talmud. To be one of the strangest stories in the Talmud, you have to be very strange. And this is a very strange story. Okay, this is source number six. The English is on the, is on the next page. It's a story that uh, appears in a tractate that has to do with purity law, and particularly the laws relating to menstruation, right? Jewish law um, has a whole code that goes back to the book of Leviticus about purity relating to menstrual impurity, okay? 
that's traditional area of Jewish law. What we find in this story, though, is amazing. Instead of the rabbis talking among themselves about this area of law, instead of community members, Jewish community members, dealing with this law, we have a, a member of the king's court involved in this area of law. Look at the story. If Rehormiz, the mother of King Shapur, by the way, this would be the second King Shapur, based on the rabbi that she's involved in. So this is now we're in the fourth century. Sent blood, right, some kind of sample of blood uh, before Rafa to determine whether it's pure or not pure. Ravovadia was sitting in front of him. He had a student. Rava smelled it. This is how he's making his determination about the origin of this blood. He said to her, this is blood of desire, some category of blood, apparently. She said to her son, King Shapur, see how wise the Jews are? He said to her, maybe Rava is like a blind person who chanced upon a window. Maybe he just got lucky and he somehow knew the origin of this blood. This is a really strange source, and I can't get into all the details, but you'll see I have a specific point I want to make. She then sent Rava 60 kinds of blood. He stated them all. The last one was lice blood, and he did not know it. Nevertheless, the matter was aided by heaven, and he sent her a lice exterminating comb. In other words, he gave a gift right, to the Persian queen mother. Uh, he gave her a comb that kills lice as the parent of uh, for children, some of whom sometimes occasionally get lice. I would love to have this, this coat. This would be really useful. Okay, he gives her this as a, a gift, and she realizes that he knows, even though he doesn't really know, the origin of this blood. She exclaimed, Oh, Jews, you dwell in the chambers of the heart. Okay, a profoundly weird story. Uh, and we don't have time to make sense of all of its particulars, but I want to make sense of a few of its particulars as a way of understanding another level of what it meant that the Jews lived in this space and that the Talmud was produced in this space, in this Iranian space. First of all, why in the world would the Queen Mother send blood for you know, ritual diagnosis by a rabbi? This is the strangest thing in the world, right? Many Jews... Right, right or wrong, are embarrassed by this whole area of Jewish law. They're embarrassed by the mikvah. Right, and here you have a queen mother saying, "Please help me here. Diagnose this, this, this blood. Why would that happen?" And by the way, this is not just a question that we're asking. This is a question that the greatest Talmudic minds asked. Rashi, uh, the great commentator, uh, tried to understand what was happening, and he came up with a theory. The theory wasn't based on. Uh, any historical evidence, but was based on his desperation of trying to explain this. He said, if Rahormiz, if Rahormiz was trying to, was about to convert, so she wanted to Judaism, so she wanted to already familiarize herself with this area of law, right? That's a sort of act of desperation, uh, that explanation. What did you say? What explanation did I you say? She was trying to catch him up. Yes, well, clearly the second, well, clearly the second part, she, she or her son, and we've seen other sources. Her son has, like, a problem with Rava. Uh, he's trying to, to mess him up, send 60, you know, things. Even if, you know, to take another sphere of diagnosis, even if you're the world's greatest radiologist, someone sends you a 1,000 uh, images to look at, you know, it could get a little dizzying, and he might make a mistake. So why would she do this? And also, what's with this lice exterminating comb? I mean, I understand it needs to work for this bizarre plot to unfold, but can you imagine right, going to, I don't know, the Queen of England uh, and saying, I have a gift for you, my queen. 
Here is a lice exterminating globe. I mean, it's preposterous. What could this mean? However, if we remember and recognize the fact that the Persian kings were associated with Zoroastrianism, and Zoroastrianism had certain fascinating features to it, especially having to do with ritual and purity, then we can begin to make sense of some of this story. So first of all, Zoroastrianism is a dualistic religion, kind of like the Manichaeans, maybe a little less extreme, but they divide the world into good and evil. They believe that there is a good spirit, a good God, that should be worse than it. That's the bad one. Ahura Mazda. Very good. And that's the God, and that name actually appears in, in another Talmudic story, which we wouldn't have time to look at. Um, and on the other hand, uh, there's an evil spirit that needs to be combated. By the way, this is theologically a very convenient religion because us monotheists, we always have this problem in explaining how is, why is there evil in the world, right? I mean, if we believe that God is responsible for everything, so that means God created the evil, and that means God is evil. Do we really believe in an evil God, right? So, you know, centuries of theologians have gotten themselves into knots and trying to explain how God can both be all-powerful and good, right? The Zoroastrians figured this out. They said, oh, anytime you see something bad in the world, that's not God. That's not the good God. That's the evil spirit, right? So this kind of dualism was very convenient, and they won a lot of debates with this uh, in late antiquity. Part of their dualism uh, was that anything negative, um, impurity, death, death is a terrible thing. Uh, so like Jews, they saw corpses as impure, as not just impure, but reflecting the existence of this evil spirit in this world. That's how they saw it. Similarly, other forms of impurity, like menstrual blood, they considered to be not just ritually impure, but reflecting somehow the force of evil in this world. They also divided animals into good animals and bad animals. Good animals, like cows, uh, should be respected. Uh, there's a way to treat them. Even if you're going to eat them, you actually need to strangle them and not, um, and not slaughter them because that was deemed to be more humane. Um, on the other hand, there are evil animals, things like frogs and lice that need to be exterminated, not just because we don't like lice in, in our children's hair, uh, but actually because they represented somehow evil. We even have implements that go back to Zoroastrian priests that were used to uh, exterminate these negative creatures which symbolized evil. So in that context, this story begins to make sense, again, without putting all the pieces together. Uh, first of all, these Persians... These Zoroastrians cared about the world of menstrual purity, uh, so we could imagine why the rabbis would tell such a story. And also, they, um, they had a notion of killing these noxious creatures as they knew them, things like lice, uh, and that's how that, that's how that plot device uh, would work. Now, I want to think about a little more deeply what happens when Jews live in a Persian space where there are some ritual similarities, right? Uh, and both Jews and Zoroastrians have stakes, right, in how one is supposed to go about themselves ritually. Right? This, is a, this is sort of a different experience than I think many of us feel uh, in a largely Christian country, right, where Jews are sort of ritually focused. We have all kinds of rituals that we do. And often, right, especially in kind of Protestant spaces, we're more engaged in ritual and other, you know, members of other religions are more interested in theology and things like that, right? Uh, here, 
you have Jews, Zoroastrians, and in fact other religious communities living there that were equally engaged and animated by what we would call halakha, right? Jewish law, it, it, issues of ritual. And sometimes it seems that that could lead to tension. So this is source number seven. Um, this gives us a little ickling of, um, I wouldn't call it persecutions, but some tensions that we had uh, under the Persians that seem to have stemmed from these areas of life. This is based on an, uh, on an interpretation of a verse in Deuteronomy. Right? The verse says, this is source seven, with a foolish nation, right, begoy naval, I will anger them. Right? This is a biblical prophecy that God says, if the Israelites do not conduct themselves properly, I will set upon them a foolish nation. Rabbi Yochanan Amar, Elu Chabarim. Rabbi Yochanan said, these are the Magi, right? the Zoroastrian priests. This is a word that Jews used for the Zoroastrian priests. Amru Leil Rabbi Yochanan. They said to Rabbi Yochanan, Atu Chabari Labavel. The Zoroastrian priests have come to Babylonia. He leaned over and fell. He was so upset. They said to him, they accept bribes. He sat up straight. Okay? <laughs> this is also sort of, you know, back in the day, not you know, how we live now, but back in the day, how sometimes Jews survived. Right? Here's the point that I want to focus on. They decreed regarding three things for three sins. Okay? This is a like, little sophisticated uh, um, way of expressing something. These Zoroastrian priests made three decrees regarding certain practices because the Jews had sinned in three ways. Right? So this is a theology um, known in English as measure for measure, where Jews often believe that if they are somehow punished for something, they are punished for that thing because of some sin that they did. Right? So this is obviously contested and often insulting uh, in the contemporary space, but this is something that Jews have believed. Uh, for generations, right? That isn't, it isn't just arbitrary, the, the trials and tribulations that befall us, but there's some kind of calculus, divine calculus, that's working. So for example, there are these three decrees. They decreed regarding meat because of negligence in tithing the priestly gifts. In other words, the Zoroastrian priests, the Magi. So the Magi said, you know what? No more meat, meaning... No more slaughter, right? You can't slaughter your meat and eat it in a kosher way. Why? Why would God do that uh, to the Jewish people? Because they had been negligent in giving certain priestly gifts as a, a, apart from truma, which is better known, that a certain amount of produce is given to the priests, or maaser, uh, which we still commemorate in tithing and giving donations. They give a tenth of your produce as a farmer. To the Levites, there's also... Uh, certain parts of the animal that were traditionally given to priests. And the Jews had been negligent in this. So the Talmud is saying because of that, they are punished uh, by the, 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 the meat and slaughter being entirely banned. They didn't, this is just a punishment from God. I'll get to the Zoroastrians in a second. Uh, they didn't give it to the Jewish priests. They decreed regarding the bathhouses because of negligence and immersion. So... In other words, the Zoroastrian priest said, that's it, we're shutting down all of the bathhouses, all of the places where you could immerse. Why, theologically? Because Jews had not uh, been sufficiently careful about immersion, right? There are, as I referred to before, ritually there are various times that Jews are supposed to immerse, right? 
a woman after her period is supposed to immerse in a mikveh, and they had not done this. So God punished them by having the Zoroastrian priests close the bathhouses entirely. Finally, they, meaning the Zoroastrian priests, dig up corpses because the Jews are happy in the day of their festivals. So there are various Jew, uh, Zoroastrian festivals. To this day, one is celebrated in Iran, Nowruz. It's now seen as a national holiday, so the Muslims can celebrate it as well. But this was originally a Zoroastrian festival, and there were others as well, um, that the Jews were taking part of, right? They were basically going to church on Christmas, okay? Uh, they were really celebrating uh, the non-Jewish holidays. <clears throat> so God punished them in a way that he would make them mourn, right? He would make the, the Zoroastrian priests dig up corpses that had been buried. What's amazing about this list is it works in a theological way that I just explained it, but it also works in terms of Jews doing things that bothered Zoroastrian sensitivities. So let's look back at the three things. They regarded, they decreed regarding meat. Why did the Zoroastrian priests ban the consumption of meat, of Jewish meat, of slaughter? Because of what I just said. They were against the slaughtering of animals, right? In fact, we have passages written in Middle Persian, the language that was spoken then, where we find that they accused Jews, right, of doing something terrible to animals by slaughtering. Part of the problem was what it did to the animals, and also they saw the blood on the earth, which was deemed to be sacred, uh, as problematic. So for their own ritual reasons, they made this decree. The second one, they decreed regarding the bathhouses. One of the things that Zoroastrian priests uh, hold sacred, apart from fire, which is best known, uh, is water. They felt that water is a sacred element in this world, and it has to be protected from impurity. They saw that Jews were contaminating water. In fact, we also have evidence that they said the same thing about Christians, and they closed down bathhouses for everybody. In what way might Jews have contaminated the water? Look at source number eight. Um, once again, when Jewish women would immerse to cleanse themselves after um, the period, they would be seen as contaminating the water. Source number eight comes from, I think, one of the most fascinating Jewish sources. It's an exercise in imagining how an anti-Semite would talk, okay? There's a passage in the book of Esther in which Haman, Haman, tells a lot of terrible things about the Jews in order to convince Ahasuerus to give him the right to, to kill them. That is the source of... Uh, inspiration for a long midrashic text. It's called a targum. It's a translation. But really, it's a midrash to go on and on about all, the, all sorts of things that non-Jews might say about Jews, all kinds of terrible things about uh, the Jews. So it's sort of an exercise in you know, Jewish midrashists imagining what would you say. Right? And one of the things that is said is their menstrual impurity is seven days, and their wives go out in the middle of the night and defile the water. Right? So the author of this targum, of this midrash, seemed to know that the Zoroastrian priests would deem Jewish ritual immersion as contaminating the water. So that second decree as well right, reflects um, a problem that Zoroastrians would have with Jewish practice. Finally, and perhaps most famously, has anyone ever been to Bombay, Mumbai? No? One of the big tourist attractions there is a place called the Tower of Silence. And there's a Zoroastrian community that made its way to India. In fact, the largest community, they're known as Parsis. You might have heard of Freddie Mercury. 
Uh, Freddie Mercury is a Parsi. Zubin Mehta, the famous conductor, is a proud Parsi. Uh, that's the community of Zoroastrians that had made their way to India uh, later, after the time of the Talmud. But the reason why I'm mentioning them is because the, one of the well-known tourist attractions uh, in the city, which was, by the way, largely built by Parsis, they're a very successful uh, minority, is this thing called the Tower of Silence. They do not believe in burial. In fact, they think that burial contaminates the earth. So what they would do, without getting too gruesome, uh, is put the bodies out to be consumed by vultures. Uh, in a way, it's sort of very ecological. Uh, and then they would take the bones and they would, they would collect them uh, and put them away, right, in a mausoleum or in some other source. Uh, so we have evidence, not only from the Talmud, but from other texts as well, like by Christians, that at various points, Zoroastrian priests, if they got very fanatical, would exhume corpses that Jews had buried. Right? Jews believe in burial. Christians believe in burial. So here, too, Apart from the theological explanation that the Talmud offers, there's also a, uh, a, a kind of ritual clash between Zoroastrian values of respecting fire, of respecting um, the purity of the earth, of strangling ra rather than slaughtering uh, animals. And this led to all kinds of problems for Jews. Can yeah. I just ask you to say something here? You know this whole thing about the... the um when the Jews were accused of killing Christian children, the blood lab, for making matzah. Yeah. Okay. First of all, Jews don't eat blood. And second of all, matzah is white. Okay, fine. But the Christian chose to ignore this. Now, what I see here is when they say, the wives go out in the middle of the night and defile the water. The whole point is you don't go to the mikveh until you are not going to defile. So that's an excellent question. And this goes to show how sort of technical these differences could be, which nevertheless would lead to clashes. Look at source number nine. There's one difference that the Zoroastrians had in the way that they would purify themselves after the menstrual period. They would first use a substance known as Gomez, which was bull's urine, um, as bull's urine. As much as you think that that sounds defiling, urine actually has certain cleansing qualities. Yes. So, and they stress this even in polemical texts. So with Muslims and Jews, they say, you know, first you need to use the substance. That purifies you, and only then can you go into the water and wash in the water. That, this comes from a text about how a menstru menstruating woman, after she's menstruating, purifies herself. So it's possible that this very teeny little difference, but whether you use the substance before you go into the water, caused these tensions. It's sort of something that we find in the history of religions, that you know, the, the law of the Martian, the smallest little differences are sometimes the things that you know, blow up. Okay? So there's a whole realm of things that we find in the Talmud that look like this, uh, where... Um, the Jews are trying to navigate in their, in their space. They're trying to keep halakha in the way that they can. But because the Zoroastrians also had a vested interest in their own ritual system, it could lead to clashes. So during those terrible crises, so there's a little more there. In the Christian texts that describe the closing of the bathhouses, um, the bathhouses weren't just places where you, you know, threw water on yourselves. Bathhouse culture, which especially was developed you know, in the Hellenistic world, in the Greco-Roman world, was like a spa. It's a whole day affair. Uh, and often people did not treat the water with respect, right? People would urinate in the bath. 
right? As I hear some people sometimes do in the pool, right? This is actually described in ancient texts. So the whole culture of spending the day in the baths with the water uh, was deemed problematic. It doesn't necessarily mean that they would, you know, confiscate all water buckets so you couldn't, but it does mean that bathing did become more difficult and ritual immersion in a mikvah also would have become uh, more difficult. There's actually one other thing that I don't have in the text, but is, is worth um, thinking about. Zoroastrians uh, are known, incorrectly actually, as fire worshipers. They don't literally worship fire. Fire is not their deity. But fire is important in their cult. So to this day, there are fire temples. Um, there are fire temples where fire is at the center of, the, of their worship. They feed the fire. They say prayers around the fire. Um, this, too, caused some problems for Jews. Anyone want to take a guess when? When do we uh, do something uh, in halakha with kindling, with fire? Hanukkah. On the holiday of Hanukkah, um, we, um, we kindle the fire. And there is a text in the Talmudic discussion of the loss of Hanukkah in Tractate Shabbat, um, which describes how Zoroastrian priests would try to seize the candelabra because they thought that the way that the Jews were using uh, fire on the holiday of Hanukkah was disrespectful. Wasn't the right way. Wasn't the right way, exactly. Friday night candle, for some reason that, at least the Talmud doesn't mention that there were tension around that. And interestingly enough, it's in a chapter about Friday night candles. Bamiyam Madlikin is the name of the second chapter of this tractate where it appears. But Hanukkah does appear uh, as as a place uh, of tension, which had to do with the fire. What? So, this is precisely it. This might actually be the reason why to this day there's a Jewish custom not only to do it inside, but some Jewish traditions do it specifically not next to the window, which is on the, on the surface counterintuitive. The purpose of Hanukkah is to spread the light, right? To let everyone know about this miracle. But this same rabbi says that one should put it on the table, right? And that's enough. That suffices. So it might come from this fear of what happens with these clashes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's just Haredi. I mean, I think part of the spirit of Hanukkah nowadays, and again, living in a country where we don't have to worry about these things, is to say, we're proud Jews, you know, and we're going to put in our window the Hanukkah candles. Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, the, the comment was that Haredim are known, especially Chabad. Uh, Chabad is known to make very, very public, large uh, candles. Uh, and here... Yes, that's true. That's true. What's funny is that they also, though, do it in public spaces. Right, there's usually the public, you know, municipal uh, candle lighting uh, is done on this, you know, gigantic menorah by a Chabad rabbi. In the Iranian city where my son lives, everyone is supposed to be seen. Yes, well, in, in Jerusalem, there's an old tradition in Jerusalem, not just Haredim, that it is put outside. It's actually one of the most beautiful times of year to be in the old city of Jerusalem is during the holiday of Hanukkah because people have these little spaces next to their doorway. Uh, and glass to protect the, uh, the candles where they put their, where they put their uh, menorah out there. Now, coming to our conclusion, but um, interestingly enough, the, 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 area, the topic of Hanukkah, as much as it was sort of a site of tension, 
might also reflect another side of the Iranian Talmud, that maybe there is some influence, that because we lived in a place uh, where fire was so respected, so it's possible that the loss of Hanukkah developed in a way that might reflect this. One of the ways we, we see this is that, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, is that the holiday of Hanukkah actually had been in danger of dying out. Uh, for good reason. I mean, I love Hanukkah. Uh, but if you think about the holiday, it, con- it commemorates uh, the rededication, primarily the rededication of the temple. Is that something we're going to celebrate? The temple's destroyed. It's been destroyed for 2,000 years. So it's the kind of holiday that makes a lot of sense to celebrate while the temple is standing. Isn't this wonderful? The temple had been defiled by the Greeks. They put up idols. Now the temple has been cleansed, cleansed, and we can celebrate its rededication. But now that the temple is gone, what are we celebrating? And in fact, the holiday of Hanukkah appears in a list of holidays in a text called Megillah Ta'anit, which uh, the vast majority of those holidays were nullified because they don't make sense after the temple is destroyed. So there was good reason why the, the, the holiday of Hanukkah might have just gone the way of these other, these other holidays. In fact, it barely appears in the Talmud Yerushalmi. It barely appears in the form of halakha that de- developed in the land of Israel. Only in Babylonia does this become a very big deal. Only in Babylonia, by the way, are there all kinds of laws about the holiness of the candles, of the fire, right? We even sing the song, right? We have no permission to use the candles. That's a remarkable you know, way of thinking about the candles. Usually, we don't find such things, right? Shabbos candles, we light them. They bring peace into our homes, but you know, we don't have this sort of sense that these are deeply holy lights that we can't touch. So it's possible that another side of this Iranian Talmud is uh, the ways in which Jewish law developed. Uh, so it made sense within this, within this context. I have a few examples that I'll just mention, but I won't read in, in great detail. Source number 10 is an interesting one. The laws of mourning. We find over, over, and over again. This is on the same page, but number 10. Um, an interesting phenomenon. A ra- that... The rabbi named Shmuel, whom we already met conversing with King Shapur, um, constantly says, right, and the Talmud constantly quotes him as saying, that the laws, like the lenient opinion, the laws of mourning. And there's actually, uh, time and again, in the third chapter of Moed Katan, the tractate that deals with the laws of mourning, we find that the Talmud is trying to be as lenient as possible. Why? Where does this thrust for leniency come from? Right? We don't really find this with many other areas of Jewish law, that the desire to be lenient. So if you look at source number 11, I won't read it inside, this comes from what we might call the Zoroastrian divine comedy. Right? Just like Dante uh, famously described the different realms uh, of the afterlife, particularly hell, the Zoroastrians did this as well, <laughs> centuries before Dante, perhaps influencing him, according to some scholars. And as this figure, this Dante-like figure, is being led into the afterlife to be able to see what happens there, he comes across people who are trying to cross a a deep river. And they can't do it. It's very difficult. The explanation that's given to him is because their relatives cried too excessively. So their tears somehow kept that, uh, keep these souls in the afterlife from reaching the station that they're supposed to reach. Other religious communities as well 
that neighbored the rabbis had a similar attitude towards mourning, that you should hold back as much as possible from expressing mourning. So the Mandeans, another group who actually today exist in very, very small numbers. They've been terribly persecuted uh, in Iraq with the various wars that we've experienced the last uh, decade plus. Uh, they also have the same idea that one is not supposed to mourn excessively, one should not try to cry. And it's possible that this desire to tamp down uh, the laws of mourning might come from this, uh, this posture. Finally, and this is my last example that I want to end with, um, we can see how an Iranian Talmud and even the influence on Jewish law doesn't only work in the direction of Zoroastrians respect fire and now the Jews you know, greatly respect the Hanukkah lights, right? but rather it could work in the other direction as a sort of counter-reaction. This comes from a discussion about the different blessings that we recite before the Shema, uh, particularly at night. There's this strange need uh, to not only mention light in the morning, and we say these in the blessings before Shema, we give thanks to God for the light that we have, but also to mention the nighttime, right? And similarly, at night, we mention not only the nighttime, but also the day. So my late teacher, Professor Yaakov Elman, uh, when he read this passage, he came up with, I think, a very interesting interpretation, that the rabbis were trying to reject Zoroastrian dualism, where night and day were kept apart, not only right, in terms of the way the world works, but theologically, that these two things do not meet. And the rabbis, who are monotheists, right, wanted to express, first of all, just in terms of the reality that there is mixture of darkness and light, the theology that God is the God of not only good, but as Yeshayahu said, also bad, right? That also is somehow connected to our good God. Uh, and I think more than that, and with this I close, the rabbis recognize that there is a lot of complexity in the world, that night and day, that darkness and light do intermingle, they are not entirely separate. Somehow it all stems from God, even if we don't always understand uh, how. And this is how the rabbis, I think, taught us and made their way in this very complex but um, rich world that was the world of Iran. So in response right, to that first source that we read, the rabbis envision a way of really a variety of approaches for how to live in this Iranian space. They recognize the political challenges. They recognize that they're still living, quote-unquote, under the reign of Ahasuerus. They recognize that their form of learning is deeply Babylonian. They see themselves as connected to the king, as doing things similar from the king. But they also experience and navigate it in very sophisticated ways, various challenges, forms of persecution, and ultimately came up with a way of being Iranian, which was Jewish and Iranian. So I close with that, and we have a good amount of time for questions. So thank you so much for being a very captive audience. But doesn't, doesn't it happen that wherever the Jews are living, hasn't it always happened, and doesn't it happen now, that we attune ourselves to our environment, and I'm not talking about just, you know, we ordinary people, but I see, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 
a big fan of Lord Saxe's, and I see him putting interpretations into our way of living now. So I see a parallel between what the Babylonians were doing and what we do now to yes. a certain extent. We make accommodations. Yes, I, and I think uh, the question was, is this something that we just see you know, in the Talmud? Uh, or is this something, it wasn't a question, it was an, a correct observation, um, that, that this is how we, you know, we often see uh, rabbis, even prominent rabbis. And I agree. I just think it's, it's particularly interesting and significant when we find it in the Talmud, because the Talmud ultimately is sort of the bedrock of Jewish tradition, even more than the Bible. Of course, Torah Shemichtav, right, is Torah Shemichtav, the written law, is, you know, is, is our foundation. But what ultimately informs Jewish law and, and the basics of Jewish theology is found in the Talmud. And yet, and that kind of, that ground zero, we find the rabbis are adapting and, and working within the space. Have, have you read the story about when Lord Sex was knighted? Um, I watched the knighting, but I didn't read the story. Leaving. Oh, interesting. And how about the, the queen made an accommodation to not kneel. Wow, wow. So that's the other side of the rulers interacting with the ruled. Yes, and I think that, you know, it reflects something that's much more common in our contemporary age that, you know, imagine, uh, you couldn't even imagine a knighting taking place for many centuries in England because Jews were banned, right? Jews had been expelled from England, so yes, I mean, there are accommodations that can run both ways. Earlier, in an earlier period in history, it, <laughs> those, those accommodations coming from the rulers were few and far between, to say the least. You had the Hofjuden. Yes, no, 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 you have these. There were accommodations. Yeah, there were accommodations, certainly. And we navigated this, yeah. Yes. So those that were involved with law and commerce and study and education and learning and the society of, that they were brought to was so entrenched with that that there was a, a natural meshing, so to speak, of influential places. And um, we've seen all through history how when Jews were asked to leave or taken away, they frequently elevated themselves to areas of influence with education and medicine and, and leadership roles, even though they were subservient and really just kept on the side. There sometimes was this back and forth where um, either out of curiosity to or, or actual interest, they learned of and about. And I think it's part of our history. Yeah. That we've naturally had to learn how to, to respectfully follow the rules of the lands we lived in, or we would be annihilated. Yeah, yeah. And so we, they clearly told us, you know, you follow the land, the law of the land as long as it doesn't contradict Jewish law. Right. And, uh, though sometimes it did contradict Jewish law. Sometimes it did, yeah. and then they were, yeah. what did we do? So, right. And then they got into the, the difficulty areas. But yeah. Yes, yeah, no, it's very much survival, but you, know, you began by talking about how the 
Jews, the, those Jews who moved to Babylonia initially, and this, by the way, is centuries before the period we were talking about here, in the 6th century, right, before the Common Era, that initial, you know, Babylonian diaspora was uh, the educated elite. And in fact, the less educated people stayed in the land of Israel. Uh, and, you know, we read some of the tensions when ba some Babylonian Jews returned in the book of Ezra, kind of dealing with the people of the land. Um, so, you know... Yeah. There's always a difference. Yeah, there's a yin and a yang. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, you commented in the first several readings uh, on the almost contempt of the Jerusalem rabbis for the Babylonian yeah. way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if if we look at the Jerusalem Talmud, don't we see We definitely do. We definitely do. And that that sort of in Talmud scholarship and scholarship on the Jerusalem Talmud is something that is relatively well known. Uh, and there it's pretty easy to see. You have a lot of Greek words uh, and kind of Greek ideas that do appear uh, in the Talmud. One of the great Talmud scholars of the 20th century, Saul Lieberman, uh, wrote uh, two books, which then were combined as one, called Greek uh, and Hellenism in Palestine. Right? So that's something that, uh, that we've known and is, is also worthy of interest. Um, this area of research was less known. Uh, it's also, I think, a little, um, even a little more exciting because the Babylonian Talmud, once again, uh, was much more influential in Jewish history than uh, the, the Jerusalem Talmud. But yes, 100%. I mean, there are cultural factors and societal factors that uh, the Jews dealt with in the land of Israel uh, and certainly influenced the way that they lived and learned and taught. So, so this criticism of, well, if we think it's a mixed way. Yes, I mean, right. I mean, and to this day, you know, Jews in the diaspora, Jews in the state of Israel, they have their, you know, their their arguments and their their debates. Hopefully, uh, it's still informed by deep love, uh, for, you know, for one side or the other. Hopefully, as it should be. Um, so, you know, Rabbi Yochanan, by the way, interacted all the time with Babylonian rabbis. Uh, he uh, he seemed to have enjoyed their company. Uh, so it's not as if this was some kind of ban, right, of Babylonian learning. But he did feel uh, the need to. Um, to criticize it, which is his right. Uh, uh, certainly was his right. In fact, um, there's another statement by uh, a, a, a sage from the land of Israel that gives you the ideal of how one is really supposed to study. They say that you should divide your study time into three parts, the same way that this is three parts. You divide part of the day for the study of Torah, you divide part of the study of your day for the study of Mishnah, and then part of your day for the study of the Talmud. Right? Uh, instead, what ends up happening uh, in Babylonian learning, and by the way, in yeshiva learning, for centuries, uh, is that it's all mixed up. And in fact, the Tosafists, who were kind of great Jewish scholastics of the Talmud, 
uh, had to defend the practice, had to defend the mixture uh, against this ideal of dividing it. So kind of this debate, whether it's all one big soup or divided into three nice parts, continued for many, many centuries. And even debates today about the curriculum of yeshivas are similar. Yeah. So maybe I'll take a quick look at the last question tonight. Uh, mine is kind of broad and a little bit left field. But um, if you take the average American view, they're not cracking open the Talmud in the right. Right? outside of orthodoxy. Uh, and so I wonder, like, would you make a case for the Talmud? Like, what do you think the Talmud has, Talmud learning had to offer the, the modern history. Yes. So um, I, I see that, first of all, I, I, I don't think that's entirely true. I do think that uh, there are plenty of non-Orthodox Jews, uh, maybe even more recently, who are engaged in one way or another with Talmud study, though I agree with you that it is much more prevalent in the Orthodox community. Um, I think the case uh, has to do with why it's been so difficult for people to learn. It is extremely challenging, right? It is extremely demanding intellectually to understand a page of Talmud. So the first part of the case is sort of counterintuitive, but is this is a piece of our tradition which is hard. It's genuinely hard. It's not just you know, the stories you might hear from your rabbi, um, but you have to crack your head on this, and it's worthwhile. But beyond that, <laughs> just the point of the challenge is my, you know, my father and others say it builds character, right? Beyond that, I think that the way in which the Talmud thinks, the way in which the Talmud takes a topic, right, and navigates through that topic, not just by saying the law is such and such, but goes through a discussion, entertains this possibility, that possibility, and, you know, moves you through the topic, uh, often in ways that even touch upon the most profound existential aspects of her life uh, is, is the real reason. I'll give you just a quick example. Um, in uh, the third chapter of the Talmudic tractate Bava Metzia, the laws of lost objects are discussed. And the discussion can be extremely technical about when is one obligated to return a lost object, how is one obligated to return a lost object, but if you learn, if you study these passages with kind of your eyes open, you can see that the questions are huge towards even existential in terms of loss, in terms of recovery. Um, first of all, you know, just the idea that you are obligated, not only a good Samaritan's law, but you are obligated to go and help your friend. Not, it's not a good deed. You are obligated to help your friend return his lost object, her lost object, right? It is a profound idea. And the way this discussion uh, you know, works clearly is dealing with you know, issues on the highest level. So it's extremely challenging. Uh, the non-linear way of thinking uh, is, I think, refreshing. And the inclusion of these different opinions to touch on profound ideas is, that's my case for the Talmud on one foot. I think, that, I think there's another reason why a lot of people haven't studied Talmud. Yeah. They don't read Hebrew, they don't read Aramaic. But thankfully, there are now, now there, there are now tools. Yeah. But the translations yeah. have come in. You know, the Steinzeltz started coming out what twenty years ago, maybe. Well, the current Talmud the current. is now reaching its completion. I'm yeah. happy to say. But that's yeah. what I'm saying. Is yeah, it's taken time. Six hundred yeah. years. Yeah. If you didn't, if you didn't. Oh, definitely. Know the language, yes. Well, you couldn't study. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. That's yeah. true. Sincino's hard, yeah. can be hard to use. Yeah. It's a little easier, actually, because I find 
Yeah, art school can get too complicated. Yeah. mindset of thinking and interpreting and reading it, I forget which passage it was that we were doing several three years ago when we were studying it. Before we even looked at the text, maybe we had to go through some very typical, she had to help us understand how they were wrestling in the mindset at the time yes. of the discussions, so that, because if you didn't have the privy of how the dialogues worked and the the structure uh, and the, the norm of the conversation and the banter at the time, when you read it from our modern perspective, it made no sense at yeah. all. Yeah. So, yes, it is very challenging, but that's. Right, to guide you. And I think that's precisely it. In other words, you know, if you're just interested in logic, well, there are you know, great profound works by philosophers on logic that you can learn. Uh, the Talmud presents you with a sort of alternate way of thinking, which takes a while, and you often do need a guide uh, to get there. But once you're there, it's like, wow. They're really thinking in different ways, and there's something to the way that they think. So, yeah. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.